Today is the 16th of August 2022 and this evening uh, we're going to look at um, some teachings from the Diamond Sutra, uh, th throwing out the four false views or signs. Um, we're going to be drawing on um, a book from Thich Nhat Hanh called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, uh, which, which includes these teachings from the Diamond Sutra, so we'll be drawing on this text. Um, actually, this, this um, book, which only came out last year, is um, a collection made by Thich Nhat Hanh's students of his writings, but all under this um, subject heading of, of Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Maybe not a great title, but a good, probably helps to sell books. But this teaching that he, he offers and shares with us, I think is a really helpful one in dealing with some of the, the the crises that our, our humanity is facing, um, how to look after ourselves in the in the face of these crises, so that we can be of of use to others. First section we're going to look at is entitled Spring Thunder. Many of us are barely awake. We're living in the world but we can't really see it. It's as though we're sleepwalking. To wake up first of all is to wake up to the beauty of the earth. You wake up to the fact that you have a body and that your body is made of the earth, the sun and the stars. You wake up to the fact that the sky is beautiful and that our planet is a jewel of the cosmos. You have an opportunity to be a child of the earth and to make steps on this extraordinary planet. Probably many of us first wake up to the beauty of the earth as children with our, with our wide open minds and it's, it may be this, that this experience that brings us to practice. We, we have this memory and we want to find that place again where we can really truly see the earth and the sun and the stars. Second, to wake up means to wake up to the suffering in the world. You wake up to the fact that the earth is in danger and living species are in danger. You want to find ways to bring relief, healing and transformation. This requires a tremendous force of energy. If you have a strong desire in you, a mind of love, 
That is the kind of energy that will help you do these two things. Wake up to the beauties of the planet to heal yourself and wake up to the suffering of the world and try to help. If you have that source of strength in you, if you have that mind of love, you are what can be called a Buddha in action. If you see the suffering in the world but you haven't changed your way of living yet, it means the awakening isn't strong enough. You haven't really woken up. In Zen, sometimes a teacher will shout or hit you so, as you, so you can wake up. They'll do whatever it takes. The Zen master's shout is like the crash of spring thunder. It wakes you up and with the rains that follow, grasses and flowers will bloom. That, that um, shout that we hear can come in many different forms. It might be that an experience of a uh, grave illness wakes us up, or the death of somebody we love, or just our, our um, reaching a certain age and realizing how little time there's left. or seeing the destruction or degradation of, of a, a place that we love and treasure, an environment or an ecosystem, or a group of people, country. We need a real awakening, a real enlightenment. New laws and policies are not enough. New laws and policies are not enough. We could say that these things, new laws and policies, the policies are necessary, but not sufficient. Over the weekend, I read a, an article written by Russell Norman uh, from Greenpeace about um, his concern that the, the government's pre present uh, climate crisis response contains elements of greenwashing. Um, I think everybody probably knows this term. It's when businesses or politicians um, give a false impression of what their products or policies mean for the environment. They, um, they sell them as being um, having a positive impact when they maybe they don't. And he, Russell Norm was particularly critici criticizing the, the compromises that the government has made with the dairy industry. And so it's, it's a phenomenon of, you could say, getting too cosy with people who haven't yet fully woken up to the problem. And um, the, it can be that, that the decision makers also have not really fully woken up, and therefore they think they're doing good when they're not. Or it could be that motives are not pure and they they're, um, realize that they're not um, 
providing the best policies, but they, they, they put a spin on the policy. Or it could also be real politic in the sense that they know they're making a compromise which is the best thing they can do at the time. But, the, but really the upshot is, I think, we can take from this teaching of, of Thich Nhat Hanh's new, new laws and policies are not enough. We need to be working on, on people's hearts and minds, um, but at the same time also being realistic about where people's hearts and minds are and sometimes having to make laws which uh, people haven't agreed with. This is the point, one of the points that Russell Norman makes. But if we, again, to just present the other side, if we, if we twist people's arms too much before they, their hearts and minds have come around to seeing what the problem is, really waking up, then um, that may not work either. We have the example in the USA of um, this huge piece of climate legis legislation which they've managed to get through um, but can it survive a change in government when things are so polarised in that country? In in which case, in which case, the work that we do on ourselves becomes even more important if we are going to face the kinds of, of disasters that will occur if if nothing is done or if of greenwashing is what we get, rather than actual policies that are effective. But the point that Thich Nhat Hanh makes here as he continues, it's my conviction that we cannot change the world if we're not able to change our way of thinking, our consciousness. Collective change in our way of thinking and seeing things is crucial. Without it, we cannot expect the world to change. Collective awakening is made of an individual awakening. You have to wake up yourself first, and then those around you have a chance. When we ourselves suffer less, we can be more helpful, and we can help others to change ourselves themselves too. Peace, awakening, and enlightenment always begin with you. You are the one you need to count on. No one else can live our lives for us. And, and each of us is a unique combination of, of talents and, and values and dreams which only we can realize. He points out that when we, when we suffer less, then we can offer more. We can, if we suffer less, we can, can uh, stay calm in the midst of, of a crisis, help others who are in need. On the one hand, we must learn the art of happiness, how to be truly present for life, so we can get the nourishment and healing we need. On the other hand, we must learn the art of suffering, 
the way to suffer so we suffer much less and can help others suffer less. It takes courage and love to come back to ourselves to take care of the suffering, fear and despair inside. I think this is a beautiful um, turn of phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh here has, has. And this is, this is not a new, new one. This has appeared in his work before. But to learn the art of suffering as, as denizens of, of samsara, we're all going to suffer. But to learn the art of suffering, how to suffer well, and how to, how to not suffer unnecessarily. To meditate is crucial to get out of despair, to get in the, the inside of non-fear to keep your compassion alive so you can be a real instrument of the earth helping all beings. To get the insight of non-fear. There's, there's a, um, a teaching in the Mahayana of the eight concepts um, they're also named, known as the eight no's of the middle way. In other words, um, eight false concepts. These are, these are the different, which are the main ones we're looking for, but they, they uh, play in here and uh, pop up in, in, in this text. The eight concepts, um, which to destroy... If we can destroy these ideas, it's considered to be nirvana. And they are four pairs of dualisms. Birth and death, permanence and dissolution, coming and going, one and many. And we, we get hung up on these. And fear is often the emotion that goes along with uh, thoughts about these things, about death or dissolution. We can feel powerless among all the many, many people who, are, who so outnumber us. We can f be afraid of what we might lose or what we might have to put up with. Insight is what um, saves us from these fears. The insight of non-fear. And this is what uh, the teaching of these uh, four false views is all about. He continues, to meditate doesn't mean to escape life, but to take time to look deeply. You allow yourself time to sit to walk, not doing anything, just looking deeply into the situation and into your own mind. It's so, it's so much a part of our um, conventional way of thinking to, to um, imagine that to be effective is to rush around, 
to run from one thing to the next, to catch, never catch one's breath, but when in fact taking time to sit and to catch our breath, to walk, to not do anything is uh, absolutely necessary to look deeply into anything and into our own minds. The extinction of species is taking place every day. Researchers estimate that every year over 20,000 species go extinct and the rate is accelerating. This is what is happening now. It's not something in the future. We know that 251 million years ago, there was already global warming caused by gigantic volcanic eruptions and the warming caused the worst mass extinction in our planet's history. Um, it was the worst one, it isn't the most recent one, the, the most recent one was just 65 million years ago, when a ma massive um, meteor um, struck the Gulf of Mexico, created the Gulf of Mexico, as you probably say. The six degree Celsius increase in global temperature was enough to wipe out 95% of the species that are alive. This was the one that happened 251 million years ago. So 95% of the species were wiped out. Now a second massive warming is taking place. This time there is also man-made deforestation and industrial pollution. Perhaps within a hundred years, there may be no more humans on the planet. After the last mass extinction, it took the Earth a hundred million years to restore life. If our civilization disappears, it will take a similar time for another civilization to reappear. I think even this, even though it's this vast period of time, it is, it is somehow reassuring to know that in its slow, steady way, that balance will come back and life will come back. If our civilization disappears, it will take a similar time for another civilization to appear. When we contemplate this, it is only natural that a feeling of fear, despair or sadness may arise. That is why we have to train ourselves to touch eternity with the practice of mindfulness breathing, with our in-breath and out-breath. Mass extinction has already happened five times, and the one underway now is the sixth. According to the deepest insights of Buddhism, there is no birth and no death. After extinction, life will reappear in other forms. This is the first of our, um, two of our eight concepts birth and death. We, we hold them up as opposites rather than seeing them as two aspects of one process. We'll, go, we'll, we'll touch on this more later on in this text. You have to breathe very deeply in order to acknowledge the fact that we humans may one day disappear. How can we accept that hard fact and not be overwhelmed by despair? Our despair is fueled by views we have about ourselves and the world. 
when we start to re-examine our views and change our way of thinking and seeing things, it becomes possible to transform the mind of discrimination that is at the very root of our suffering. It is possible to train ourselves to see and experience the present moment in a deeper way. And once we touch reality deeply in the present moment, we touch the past, we touch the future, and we touch eternity. We are the environment. We are the earth, and the earth has the capacity to restore balance, even if many species must disappear before balance is restored. This, this, this is the long view that we really need to take. Um, um, I remember one time in the um, uh, this big arena with I think like maybe ten or fourteen thousand people there when the Dalai Lama came for one of his visits, and somebody asked him about about the environmental crisis, and he. Um, also took the long view that we must must see things in terms of of the the destruction and creation of 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 whole universes see ourselves on on that kind of grand arc rather than in a narrow way It doesn't take years of practice to touch eternity in the present moment. In a split second, you can touch it. Taking just one breath or one step on the earth with mindfulness and concentration can help you transcend time. When you touch the present moment deeply, you have an eternity to live. goes on to talk a little bit about um, the origins of Zen in Vietnam, which was, was a, a new story for me. He says, the Sanskrit term for meditation is dhyana. The Chinese pronounce it chan. In Vietnamese, we say tien. And in Japanese, they say zen. The Chinese character literally means the practice of reflecting. In my tradition, we use the expression, the practice of looking deeply. To reflect like a, like a deep pool reflects. Um, Thoreau compares um, an, a forest pool um, uh, to an eye, like a, a giant eye resting in the, in the, in the um, face of the earth. In order to look deeply, you need to make time to be here, there with mindfulness and concentration so you can direct your attention to what is going on and take a deep look. With the energy of mindfulness and concentration, you can get a breakthrough and begin to see the true nature of what is there. It may be a cloud, a pebble, or another human being, or it may be your anger or even your body. And so the practice of Zen, dhyana, meditation, is to be fully present and look deeply. If we were to boil it all down to um, just two words, we might say stop and look.
Buddhism in Vietnam began with the meditation tradition. In the beginning of the third century, there was a merchant from Sogdia in Central Asia who traveled to what is today northern Vietnam, perhaps along what's called the Maritime Silk Road. He stayed there to do business and waited until the winds were favorable to sail to India. This young merchant found Vietnam very pleasant, so he settled there and married a Vietnamese young lady. They had a little boy, half Indian and half Vietnamese, who would go on to become the first teacher of Buddhist meditation in Vietnam and China, Master Tang Hoi. When Tang Hoi was 10 years old, his father and mother passed away, and he was taken by an Indian Buddhist, taken in by an Indian Buddhist temple, in what is now northern Japan, northern Vietnam, sorry, to train to be a monk. These temples had been established all along the Silk Road to to serve the the, the travellers along that road. So. He um, studied at the temple both um, Sanskrit and Chinese, and he crossed over into into the Wu Kingdom, and um, apparently was uh, favorably received and and built um, the first Buddha. Buddhist temple in the kingdom of Wu. And apparently you, if you go to Nanjing today, you can still see the ruins of this temple. So this is kind of like a, um, a parallel story to that of Bodhidharma, who was not to appear in China for another 300 years. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, many people think of Bodhidharma as the first teacher of Zen Buddhism in China, but that's not true. Three centuries earlier, Tang Hoi was already teaching there. He is truly the first Zen master of Vietnam and China. And while uh, Bodhidharma did not leave any writings, Tang Hoi left behind many works that are still preserved, including precious translations and commentaries. He translated and taught the Diamond Sutra, one of the most beloved scriptures in the Zen tradition and the earliest text to explore deep ecology. So this, this um, teaching of the Diamond Sutra is coming to us from this distant ancestor. Um, actually, there are teachings that we have from Bodhidharma, wonderful ones, that were discovered in the Donghuan Caves um, last century. But Tang Hoi, Master Tang Hoi, in his, in his um, commentaries on the sutra, um, translated one of the, the, the um, teachings that we're going to look at as being to throw away these four false views that we're going to look at. To throw them away, to throw them out, to release them. And these four notions 
uh, are the self, human being, living beings or sentient beings, and the notion of lifespan. Um, signs is the way that they're often translated in different versions of the text. Um, but maybe more, more understandable, we could say they're, they're labels. They're notions that we have about the nature of things which are false and actually cause us much suffering. In the sutra, it says that if you are still caught in these notions, you're not yet free and you cannot be a real bodhisattva, an awakened being helping to relieve suffering in the world. But if you can break through these ideas, you'll have the insight, understanding, and freedom you need to help save the planet. It takes insight and courage to throw away an idea. If we have suffered deeply, it may be because we held on to an idea and weren't able to release it. Throwing away is a very strong term. It's not just letting go. All those centuries ago, it was Master Hung, Tang Hoi who used the term throw away to translate the Pali term Patini Saga. So this is the strong, you know, saying in the strongest terms, discard these wrong views, get rid of them. Don't let them make you suffer. Don't let yourself be burdened by them. The purpose of looking deeply and meditating is to get insight, and insight is something we have to experience for ourselves. So we shouldn't waste time accumulating new ideas and knowledge. We have to learn in such a way that helps us overcome our real challenges and obstacles. The aim of a Zen master is to help students to transform, not to transmit knowledge or views. A Zen master is not a professor. My tradition belongs to the lineage of the 9th century Zen master Linji. He said, my aim is not to give you knowledge. My aim is to help you break free from your views. Understanding should not be only empty knowledge, but deep insight. Insight is not the outcome of thinking. Insight is a kind of direct, intuitive vision that you get from strong concentration. It's not a product of thinking. It is a deep intuition. And if it is re a real insight, it will have power to free you from your anger, your fear, and your suffering. I think here of the, the words um, defining the Zen tradition, which um, are attributed to Bodhidharma, but, but were our first seen quite a lot later than the time of Bodhidharma. But they, they, they really are ways of hammering home the point that Thich Nhat Hanh is making here, that um, insight is not the outcome of thinking. And these, these four, four statements are a special transmission outside the sutras, not reliant on words and letters, direct pointing to the human heart, seeing into one's true nature and realizing Buddhahood. So that's, that's why um, we meditate, really.
not to acquire knowledge, but to shed what gets in, in the way of our seeing things clearly. And this, this shedding of delusions is really what has the power to change us. Thich Nhat Hanh says, to be able to see just once in a lifetime is no small accomplishment. If you've seen once, you can see again. The question is whether you have the determination and diligence to do so. Now we get on to the actual four uh, notions. The first notion you must throw away is the notion of self. This is a very deep-rooted belief in every human being, that there is a self separated from the rest of the world, that we are ourselves and everyone and everything else, including the earth, is not us. We're born with this strong belief that we're separate. I am not you. That is your problem. It is not my problem. Intellectually, we may, may know that nothing can exist by itself alone, but in reality, we still believe things can and still behaves, behave as if we're a separate self-entity. This is the base of our thinking and behavior, and it creates a lot of suffering. It takes intensive training to throw this notion away. I think this is such an important point. It takes intensive training with these deep-rooted uh, beliefs that we have, uh, we can't get rid of them quickly as much as we would like to be able to throw them away. We actually throw them out again and again. In fact, there is no one, no self there. There is thinking, there is reflection, but there's not a person, or a person behind it. When Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, he was saying that during the time he's thinking, he is the thinking. That might be a, a flattering interpretation of Descartes. The Buddha said that there is thinking going on, but that it's not certain there's an I behind the thinking. The thinking is going on. That is something we acknowledge. But can we say there's a thinker? If there's a painful feeling, we can say for sure there is a painful feeling going on. But as for the person who is the feeler, that's not so sure. It's similar to saying it's raining. The rain is something certain. It is raining, but there is no rainer. You don't need a rainer for the rain to be possible. And you don't need a thinker for the thinking to be possible. You don't need a feeler for the feeling to be possible. That is the teaching of non-self. Uh, we get in, in our tradition the um, exchange between Bodhidharma his disciple, Quaker. This is the one where Quaker, to get Bodhidharma's attention, cuts off his arm, or so the, 
the legend goes, and and he asks with great, great intensity, your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, my teacher, please give it peace. And then Bodhidharma says, bring your mind here and I will set it at rest. And then in the, in the case it says, the second patriarch, Waker, said, I have searched for that mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, then I have put it to rest. And we don't know how much time there was between Bodhidharma asking Huayka to bring his mind to him and when Huayka returned saying, I've searched for that reminder but I cannot find him. It could, be, it could be minutes, it could be hours, weeks, months or years. And Hueco had to do that, that training himself, that mind training. He had to do whatever it took to really not find that mind. In the idea of self, there is the idea that I am this body, this body is mean, or this body is mine, it belongs to me. But this notion does not correspond to reality. When you look deeply into your body, you see that your body is a stream. You can see your parents and ancestors there in that stream. So the stream is there, but it's not sure that there is someone called myself. And in that stream, you can see ancestors and everything, not only human ancestors, but animal, plant, and mineral ancestors. There's a continuum. Whether there is a person, an actor behind it, is not so sure. Think of that, that line we chant in, in um, Harmony of Relative and Absolute chant where, where we say, branching streams flow through the darkness. It's like each of us is a little branch on that, that vast network of streams. A better statement would be, I inter-am. It's closer to the truth in the light of interconnectedness, interbeing. If father and son, mother and daughter have insight of no self, they can look at each other in the light of interbeing and there'd be no more problems. We inter-are. I am like this because you are like that. It is, a very important, it is very important to throw away the notion of I am because it does not reflect the true nature of reality. The notion of a separate self is like a tunnel that you keep going into. When you practice meditation, you can see that there is the breathing, but no breather can be found anywhere. There is the sitting, but no sitter can be found anywhere. When you see that, the tunnel will vanish and there will be a lot of space, a lot of freedom. Roshi Kaplow said on his um, Ken show that he, it was like swimming in, in the sea after being stuck in a pot of glue.
up until that point. Who am I? I am the continuation of my parents. I am the continuation of my ancestors. This is very clear. I do not have a separate self. Looking into myself, I can see my father, my mother, in every cell of my body. I can see my ancestors in every cell of my body. I can see my country, my people, in every cell of my body. I can see that I am made of many elements that can be described as non-me elements. I am made of non-me elements in that, and when these elements come together, they produce me. So I am that. I do not have a separate existence. I do not have a separate self. I think we can, we can understand this, this every cell in my body um, as our, the DNA we receive from, from our parents, but also in so many other ways. The way that we think and walk and talk, the way we smile, the way we um, hold ourselves physically, all of these um, come from the people who, who brought us up. This is right view. Seeing reality in this way, you are no longer lonely because you are the cosmos. You have this body, but you also have a cosmic body. The whole cosmos can be found in you. You have a cosmic body right here and right now, and you can talk to the cosmos in you. You can talk to your father in you, your mother in you, your ancestors in you. You are made of non-you elements. You are the continuation of parents, ancestors, stars, moon, sun, rivers, mountains. Everything is in you. So you can talk to them and you know that you are the world. You are the cosmos. And this can be seen with meditation. When you are concentrated, you begin to see. Um, with this one, it takes us back to those, those eight no's of the, of the middle way. Uh, no coming and going. How can there be coming and going when we are the whole cosmos. Where can, where can we, we could possibly come from or go to when we can't be separated from the vast whole universe itself? Well, um, our time is up now. Uh, we'll uh, keep on with the same uh, topic in the next Taisho two weeks from now. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.